Okay, I think uh, it's time to begin. And we were talking about the uh, presuppositions that underlay the uh, New Testament writers' use of the Old Testament. And, uh, <clears throat> so we were looking at the second presupposition. Before I look at it, you know, this whole topic that we've been talking about, uh, and uh, you know, the first lectures have, have been a little negative in that what are the challenges to uh, looking at uh, the New Testament uh, well interpreting the old we looked at those challenges and now we're now we're, we're going to a more positive bent and but I do want to say this that we're not just talking about uh, how the New Testament writers used the Old Testament. Don't forget, we're talking about how Jesus used the Old Testament. And this becomes a Christological issue as well. If you're saying Jesus uh, was misinterpreting the Old Testament, then that's just that's not merely a problem uh, with uh, the authority of Scripture. That's a problem with the authority of Jesus himself and, and his own person. So, this issue really has significant uh, implications. Most of the authors who are evangelical who argue that the New Testament uses the old non contextually usually don't talk about Jesus in that way. Though I think they would be forced to say that he preached the right doctrine from the wrong text and he was inspired. But they, I, I think they get a little nervous. Uh, my impression, and I begin to apply that to Jesus. So it is, it's a Christological issue too. All right, so the crisis views representing the true Israel of the Old Testament and true Israel, uh, the church in the New Testament. And we, and we want to look at some uh, passages here. But one thing that strikes me is uh, this word here, the church in the New Testament is called ecclesia. And um, ecclesia uh, is not a new word in the New Testament uh, that is in the Bible. It's, it's found in the Greek Old Testament. It refers to the congregation of Israel. Paul will refer to the ecclesia tutau, the Israel of God, uh, a number of times in uh, First and Second Corinthians. Uh, uh, the first time is in Acts 20, and it's very well addressed to the uh, elders in Ephesus. Um, and in fact, the phrase, and here we're going to talk about an illusion, okay? Um, I'll, I'll give it to you here. Um, uh, give one example. First Corinthians 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the ecclesia to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Remember I said an illusion is two unique words. The only place where you find ecclesia uh, and um, theu or theos, that is God. It's only one place, Nehemiah 13.1. The only place. And, uh, and it's talking about the congregation of Israel. And in the context, it's, it's about the worship. But 
So I, I think probably Paul is actually making an allusion in the several references he makes, First, Second Corinthians, and elsewhere, to the Church of God. Even First Thessalonians, uh, so he talks about the churches of God. Um, so uh, basically, I think what we have is the idea. There's a reason that the church that that God's people in the New Testament are called the ecclesia, especially ecclesia to the uh, because this is the continuity of the Israel of God. And that would be part of basically this. A number of people, I, Howard Marshall, a number of others, uh, not merely evangelicals, have seen that ecclesia occurs many times in the Old Testament to refer to the congregation of Israel. And they've seen that as really the background for the church in the New Testament being uh, called ecclesia. I'm just uh, pressing that and affirming that more specifically with this allusion. This is not just it's not just a general background uh, ecclesia for the church is uh, uh, being called ecclesia, but the ecclesia too is a specific allusion to Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 1. Um, so if you're interested, I have a full article on that in Journal for the Study of the New Testament, roughly 2018. Um, but we want to ask, and I'll ask you. Where would you, is there anywhere in the Bible where the Messiah, uh, whether in Old or New Testament, is called Israel? Funny little pop quiz here. I'm not going to grade you on it. What? Yes, Isaiah 49.3. You are my servant Israel. It's and he's speaking not of the nation, because sometimes in Isaiah uh, 40 to 53, he is speaking of the nation. Here he's speaking of that individual servant that uh, uh, is also spoken of in Isaiah 53. So this is the messianic servant. In fact, it's very intriguing that God's people in Isaiah are never called servants, plural, until after Isaiah 53, after the servant has uh, been described as doing his work. And all of a sudden, God's people are called servants. Why is that? I think it's because of corporate identification and representation. Uh, they're servants because they're identified with the servant, and they have been uh, uh, looking forward to that redemption, which that servant will bring about. Um, so, so, yes, thank you very much. Uh, anywhere in the New Testament, I think we come close in the New Testament. Uh, remember, there are different uh, words for God's people in the Old Testament. One is ecclesia, but Jesus is never called ecclesia because that's a Greek term. Um, where in the New Testament would you go to find um, Jesus as uh, as true Israel? Any ideas? I do think that's a good place because in John 15, 1, because if you go into the Old Testament background, Israel is pre presented as a vine. Uh, so I do think you're correct there, but there's a more straightforward one, uh, but that's a good one. Uh, but in chapter 3 of Galatians 3.16, it's a pretty famous verse. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to a seed. It does not say unto seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. <clears throat> and uh, so here, the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12, all the way up to um, the mid-30s, talking about the patriarchs seed of Abraham and the patriarchs, is Israel. That's it's the physical seed. And uh, so Jesus is now seen as that seed. 
Um, one wonders, is he misusing this? We'll talk about this. I even mentioned that uh, some think that uh, Paul's misusing uh, the Genesis promises about the seed because it says, not the seeds many, but the one. But in Genesis, it, it's plural. So how can Paul say the one seed? Uh, well, even in the Old Testament, you can find places where one person is called the seed of someone. But um, so that, that one word can be corporate or it can be single. Uh, it, this is probably an allusion all the way back to um, uh, Genesis chapter 22. Um, <clears throat> and there you find uh, the seed of Israel uh, being spoken of as an individual king. Uh, he said in Genesis uh, 22, 17, where God says, I will greatly bless you, speaking of Abraham, I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed will possess the gate of um, his enemies, the gate of his enemies, and in your descendants, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Um, the use of he here can sometimes refer to Israel. But this appears to be an individual reference to someone who will possess the gate of their enemies. It's spoken of as his enemies. And... Um, and it says, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That passage is taken as referring to an individual king in um, Psalm, uh, I believe it's Psalm 77, if I'm not mistaken. Let's see. Second. Psalm 72. <clears throat> yes. In Psalm 72, this is about the ideal coming eschatological king. Psalm 72, you may remember it. It says, um, may he, the coming king, vindicate the afflicted of the people. Um, let them fear while the sun endures. Uh, may he come like rain upon the mown grass. Uh, his days, uh, may they, uh, may, may the righteous flourish in his days. May he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, etc. He keeps talking about this ideal eschatological king. And then it says, let all men bless themselves by him. Let the nations call him blessed. And um, uh, that phrase, uh, let men bless themselves by him, let all nations uh, call him blessed, is probably an illusion, especially in uh, the Greek Old Testament back to Genesis 22, and that um, statement after it says he'll possess the gate of the enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here we have in 72, uh, let all men bless themselves by or in him, all the nations. 
let them be blessed. It's probably, I'm not the only one who argued that. Richard Baucom uh, argued that very well in, uh, in, in one of his works and uh, others have seen it. So the point of all of that, that meandering just then, is that chapter 22 is probably a reference to an individual scene. Paul's probably alluding to that in uh, Galatians chapter three. So, um, so unto your seed, that is Christ. So Christ is seen as the seed. He's Israel. And then look at the end of the passage. It's beautiful because we get both Christ and the, the, the church here. Verse 29, if you are of Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. Why? Because they're identified with him. They're in corporate. He, he corporately represents them. There, there are other passages that we could uh that we can speak of. We're going to look, uh, do an analysis of Hosea 11.1 1 and Matthew 2.15. But what I want to just mention is that when Matthew uh, applies that to Jesus, out of Egypt have I called my son, in chapter 11, verse 1, that's Israel. So it's Israel coming out of Egypt. So uh, many would say, well, of course, that's misused. But even those who would say it's misused would say Jesus is being identified as Israel, uh, even if wrongly. But um, but that that would be another text. I think that would be uh, that would be very important. Um, that there are other passages we could look at uh, that would identify uh, Jesus and or the church as um, as Israel. Uh, and we'll talk more about that. Um, we're going to look at Acts thirteen forty seven. Probably do a full lecture on that. The use of Isaiah 49, 6, and Acts uh, 13, 47, um, where uh, chapter 49, verse 6, at, at the end of it, he says to the servant, and I will make you a light to the nations. And then that's quoted in uh, Acts 13, 47, but applied to Paul. I'm commanding you to be a light to the nations. Wait a minute, how can you apply a messianic prophecy to a human who's not the Messiah. Corporate identification. In Paul's unique apostolic office, he continues the work of the servant. Well, we'll talk about that because it's a, it's a very difficult, uh, another very difficult text. Okay, so <clears throat> we're going to see this is a very important uh, presupposition. The next one is uh, that history. Uh, is unified by a wise and sovereign plan so that the earlier parts are designed to correspond and uh, point to the latter parts. Last part's cut off. History is unified by a wise and sovereign plan so that the earlier parts are designed to correspond and point to uh, the latter parts. Now, what is how would we support that? Because um, that's a big presupposition. And by the way, we're going to see how these presuppositions are crucial in solving some of the parade examples that people present uh, that, that the New Testament is using the old wrongly. Um, so here, I think we can talk about what we call uh, some of the temporal merisms uh, about God and Christ. 
in relation to history. Merism, some call it uh, the totality of polarity. You mentioned two opposites to include everything in between, you know, like the psalmist says, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the abyss, you're there, oh, but you're nowhere else. Of course not. You're, you're everywhere in between. And so um, uh, a good example of this would be um, Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses one through 11. Uh, support this presupposition. There's an appointed time for everything, a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted, so forth and so on. I think these are merisms uh, that ultimately include everything in between. And then I think he summarizes that by saying in uh, chapter three, verse 11, he's made everything beautiful in its time, everything. So, um, and then uh, in uh, Revelation chapter one and verse eight, referring to, uh, to God, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God almighty. I'm the one who is and who was and who is to come. So he's alpha and he's omega. And he's everything in between. I think the idea is this, that God was present at the beginning, Alpha. He's going to be present at the end, Omega. And he's going to be present throughout history. And that's why it's then explained by that threefold phrase. I am the one who was, is, and is to come. Though he actually puts is at the beginning. But he, so he was, he's coming, and to make clear that Alpha and Omega includes everything, he says, and I'm, I am, I was, I am in the middle, and I am coming. And so um, God is present. I think it's not just that God was present at the beginning of history, but he brought it into being, and he'll be present at the end of history to conclude it. So that this is not just about presence. This is a sovereign presence guiding history. Um, and, and, and likewise, uh, chapter 21, verse 6, you get, um, again, it says, I'm Alpha and Omega. Then he says, the beginning and the end. He makes that clear what Alpha and Omega is. And in uh, Going back to chapter one and verse 17, Jesus says about himself, um, I am the first and the last. So Jesus is identifying himself with God here because these are statements from Isaiah, actually, first and the last that are about Yahweh. And uh, so Jesus is identifying himself with these merisms about Yahweh uh, being present throughout history and actually being so in sovereignly guiding history. Um, and we, we find these statements elsewhere. I, I haven't said all of them. Uh, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, uh, Revelation 22, 13, uh, and, and, and so on. So these merisms really are the support for this um, presupposition here 
The history is unified by a wise and sovereign plan so that earlier parts are designed to correspond point to the latter parts. And we're gonna see that is very, very crucial as a foundation for typology. And we're gonna define typology later, but part of typology is earlier events point to later events. So uh, this is really a philosophy of history, this presupposition. Then the next presupposition is that the age of eschatological fulfillment has come in Christ. The age of eschatological fulfillment has come in Christ. Where would you go uh, in the New Testament to find that? The time, what, what passage do you have in mind there? Okay, the kingdom has drawn near and the time uh, is fulfilled, I think, right? Yeah. In Galatians. When the fullness of time came. Excellent. Those are those are two good passages. Um, Jesus Christ on the cross. What? Jesus Christ on the cross. He said, uh, it, is it is finished. Okay. All right. Um, some might question that one, but I think biblically, theologically, I could figure out a way to support what you've just said. Um, there you go. That that's even more straightforward. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Anything else? Could you say that Hebrews 1 also speaks of the church or just synopsis? Well, I have to see what, what phrase you're talking about there. These last days speaks to his son. Yeah. Specifically Christ. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now later in chapter two, you're going to have an identification of Christ uh, with his people. So, um, uh, you know, and he even calls them uh, his children. So, for example, you, you probably remember this in chapter, um, he's, he's been called a son, and then in verse 10, uh, he brings many sons to glory. Then verse 11, uh, in 12, verse 12, he says, I'll proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the ecclesia. And then he says, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Yeah, it's uh, it's Greek to me. <laughs> um, so um, so yeah, he calls them sons, and then he calls them brothers. So he will develop that from chapter one, verse one, but not. That's not what he means uh, at that point in verse one. Any other passages? There, there are a number of them. 
And this is important again, because there, there are believers, uh, uh, some scholars as well, who believe that the latter days almost began in Jesus' ministry, but they stopped when Israel rejected Jesus. And then there's a parenthesis called the church age, and then the church will be taken out uh, uh, of, of this world by a rapture. And then the latter day time clock will start again as Israel is upon the earth and then Christ will come and redeem them and establish a millennium. That's, that's another perspective um, that, that perhaps maybe is more prevalent in some portion of the United States than here. But I do know that um, uh, in, in places like Russia, a lot of places hold, hold this kind of theology. Um, so uh, I'm not as familiar with anything else. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Read it for me. Yeah, these things happened to them as examples that are written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages was come. Yes, on whom the, um, actually, I think, if, if I'm not uh, mistaken, upon whom uh, the end of the ages has come, actually, in Greek on whom the end of the ages has come. Beautiful. First John uh, 2.18, my little children, it is the last hour. That's katehora. And you've heard that many antichrists, or you've heard antichrists is coming. I tell you many antichrists have already come. From this we know it is the last hour, the eskatehora. Um, Acts 2.17, in the latter days, God has poured forth the spirit. And we can go on. I mean, there is so much to support this that uh, it's, uh, uh, it's it's very um, it's very very interesting. So I think I think we've supported it enough. In fact, that phrase here we go again, "escate for last hour." That combination of words occurs only there and in Daniel eight seventeen and nineteen where it refers to the last hour of the tribulation, where there's an end time opponent like an antichrist. John is probably alluding to that. And uh, Daniel is very hard to interpret, but here's a case where we can say this part of Daniel A is beginning fulfillment in the many antichrists that John is confronting. So um, it's, it's nice when you can find a uh, a, a New Testament reference is interpreting part of Daniel because Daniel's pretty tough. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so uh, that's a foundation for that presupposition. And it's an important presupposition. In fact, I would say that that, that, that eschatology, and not already not yet eschatology, is the key to understanding really the doctrines of the Old Testament. I think every doctrine in the Old Testament is a facet of already and not yet eschatology. Now that's a big statement to make, but uh, if we're talking about the ascended Christ um, who has come at the end of the ages, uh, then what he becomes at his ascension, which is many things, is these are eschatological facets. He's the eschatological son. He is the last Adam. What is that? Eschate Adam, and so on and so on. So um, he is the Mashiach. He is the Messiah who is to come in the latter days. And uh, 
So uh, already not yet eschatology is uh, very important. In fact, it, it, it's a framework uh, for a book I wrote called A New Testament Biblical Theology. Um, and I argued that a resurrection was central to understanding the doctrines of the New Testament and that resurrection means new creation. How are you not going to get into the new heavens and new resurrection? It's new creation. And that, um, uh, and then the resurrected Christ, he's attributed to different things in his ascension. Remember, ascension is nothing but the second stage of resurrection. Um, okay. So, number five. As a consequence, and this is a German presupposition here, because uh, it's a very long sentence. Mm -hmm. As a consequence of number four, uh, that is eschatological fulfillments coming, it may be deduced that the latter parts of biblical history, that is the New Testament, function as the broader context to interpret the earlier parts that is the old, because they all have the same ultimate divine author who inspires the various human authors. And one deduction from this premise is that Christ is the center of history. As the center of history, he is the key to interpreting the earlier portions of the Old Testament and its promises. I'm sorry about that long sentence. You, you can see how many presuppositions there are. I mean, that God is the ultimate divine author who inspires various human authors, uh, that Christ is the center of history, key to interpreting the earlier portions. Um, so, uh, Let me try to give some support for that, that Christ is the key to interpreting the Old Testament. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter uh, 24, please. Luke 24. Now, at the end of chapter 24, uh, which I'm not going to focus on, but I want to read, Jesus says in verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Uh, they needed their minds to be opened, certainly through the Spirit. But the passage I really want to focus on is in chapter 24, beginning at verse 25. Jesus said to the Emmaus Road travelers in Luke 24, 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Now, does this mean only the Messianic prophecies? When, when, when it says all the scriptures. So beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So we have to define all the scriptures. Are these only direct messianic prophecies? 
I think there'd be very few people who would say it's only direct messianic prophecies. That's, that's, that's pretty narrow. Well, can we include types? That is, can we include events in the Old Testament that are seen as pointing forward to something about Christ in the New Testament? And they're even, the word even fulfilled is used. And for example, that, that, that's true with the Hosea 11, 1 of Matthew 2, 15. Uh, uh, this is what uh, was written that must be fulfilled out of Egypt have I called my son. And so there's a fulfillment formula. In fact, if you look at Matthew's fulfillment formulas, it's about 13 uses of plerao or fulfill. Most of them have to do with the fulfillment, not of a direct verbal prophecy, but of some event that seems foreshadowed what Jesus is doing. Hosea, I think Hosea 11.1 1 is one of those. Again, that's a very controverted text. I'm going to give my full analysis of that later. But if we agree that this deals with events that foreshadow, not just direct verbal prophecies, if we open all the scriptures up to, to include that, well, that includes a lot more. And then you're going to see that I'm going to argue something that you may disagree with. And that is that are there more types of Christ in the church in the Old Testament than are stated in the New Testament? Are there more? In other words, should we follow the exegetical method of Jesus and the apostles in interpreting the Old Testament? And in such following, is there a legitimate way to see types? Without, I mean, there's a bad history of typology. You know, a lot of types are bogus, and uh, people see types whether or not it becomes almost just allegorical, reading weird stuff in. Is there a legitimate way? We're going to talk about this, but I'm going to contend, in fact, that there are more types than just what Jesus and the apostles mentioned. Well, if that's the case, then all the scriptures include a lot more. And, uh, and so uh, I, I think, as I said already earlier, this is where I apply my uh, Londonocentric view uh, to a Christocentric view, uh, an illustration uh, of a Christocentric view of the Old Testament. Um, eventually, uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you do what I call uh, tracing uh, the pathway uh, of a verse to its larger context, eventually you're going to run into uh, something about uh, the future. And um, so does this mean that, that every verse in the Old Testament has to do with Christ? Remember, we're talking about what does it mean that, what does it mean that Christ is the center of history and the key to interpreting it? Um, is every verse got Christ in it. Well, as, as I've already said, I think yes and no. Now, Graham Goldsworthy has summarized this very well. Let's see if I can put this on. I don't know if it's wandering well. I'm going to try and just read it to you. 
He says this, while some texts may be more peripheral to the main message, no text is totally irrelevant. Thus, an event or person in the historical narratives of the Old Testament may never be specifically mentioned again in the Bible. But still, nevertheless, it functions theologically within its own epic and literary context, even if only to be one of the less prominent events or people in the outworking of God's plan. It will always be part of a larger whole whose theological significance can be determined. That's his way of um, talking about, you know, tracing a verse to its wider context. And in this respect, uh, and this is not, this is no longer um, Goldsworthy, that quote came from preaching the whole Bible as Christian scripture. Goldsworthy, preaching the whole Bible as Christian scripture. And it was written in 2000. So, my own view can be summarized as that apparently in significant parts of the Old Testament that you may be preaching or teaching on, nevertheless, are inextricably linked to and part of larger narratives that point more clearly to Christ. So to whatever degree these apparently insignificant events or persons are linked to the larger narratives, to that degree, those verses have a Christological significance. So um, let me stop right there. Uh, uh, does anybody have any questions about uh, the way I've understood all the scriptures? <laughs> yeah. It has mentioned or well, we use the word covenant. Mm -hmm. um, I guess it, it's implied in some of these uh, points that you've made, but that seems to be like the, you know, one of the biggest. Uh, Yes, I think everything is an outworking ultimately of the covenant of works in Genesis uh, chapters one through three. And ultimately, this is called a summary. Christ fulfills the covenant of works. <laughs> but what you find is uh, I can do this. Well, I'm, I'm going to show you a little bit later that Genesis 1.28, which is the commission, uh, God blessed them. It's a rule and subdue, um, multiply and increase, rule over the birds of the heaven and uh, the creeping things on the earth and, and fill the earth. If you put Genesis 1.26 together, 1.28, that's a commission. Most people don't in my opinion, sufficiently relate that to the covenant of works. And uh, they usually focus on don't eat of the fruit. And, and, and that that was the deal. If you don't eat of the fruit, you'll be blessed. If you do eat of, eat of it, you'll be cursed. Yes, that's certainly part of it. But you've got to relate Genesis 2 to Genesis 1. And so Adam was a king placed into a garden temple. And... Um, uh, he was to function as a king priest. Now, I've said a lot there. And uh, uh, that, uh, what I've said just right there is a summary of a book I wrote, The Temple and the Church's Mission. So um, that's my footnote. I'm not going to try to prove what I just said. But part of the covenant of works 
is Adam functioning as a king priest, ruling and subduing, uh, filling the earth. I think he should have filled the earth with image bearers reflecting the glory of God. And if he had done that, then the garden would have expanded and expanded and uh, even would have stretched to the whole earth. And the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God if Adam had been faithful, I think. But he was not faithful. So what you find very intriguingly, beginning with Noah, uh, you have the repetition of Genesis 1.28. Adam doesn't fulfill it, so it's repeated to Noah. Noah becomes an Adam figure, not a second Adam or a last Adam. We can't call him that because only Jesus is that, but he is an Adam figure. He fails. And so Abraham, the mantle of Genesis 128 is given to Abraham. It's given to Isaac. It's given to Jacob. It's given to Israel. They all fail. And so then you start getting prophecies that elude and even quote Genesis 128 that Israel will fulfill in the future. Uh, that's covenant theology, basically. Um, and, and how will they do it? The seed will fulfill it for the seed, plural seed. So he will fulfill the covenant of works. And uh, I think that's why we have to contend. Uh, a, a colleague of mine from Westminster named Brandon Crow uh, uh, wrote a book on uh, was Jesus perfect? And uh, did he have perfect righteousness? And I think Yes, uh, he did, and that's crucial for uh, covenant theology. It's also crucial for justification because uh, justification is not just that he took our penalty. Um, it's also that his righteousness, which was transferred to us. Now, that's something, even in reform circles, some people don't hold to that view. They only hold that justification is a declaration of uh, innocent because Christ took our penalty. No, it's more. We take his righteousness, and um, in that that that's him fulfilling the covenant of works. We he corporately represents us in that way. So that's sort of my version of covenant theology. Now there is a book written by Peter Gentry and one of his colleagues at Southern Seminary called "Kingdom Through Covenant," mm -hmm. and um, there, there's some good stuff on the way the covenants relate there. The reason for them writing that book ultimately was to defend credo-baptism. Um, and um, I think you can, I can get a lot from that book without agree agreeing with that conclusion about credo-baptism. But um, at any rate, so that, that, that's just a little bit of a long answer to your question. And I will, we will look at those Genesis uh, 128 verses here pretty soon, probably even today, if not today, tomorrow. But you want to add any more on that? Just to say, you know, I've often been intrigued when um, the Lord came to be baptized and he said, uh, we must fulfill all righteousness, mm -hmm. which I take it is the summing up of everything. It's the, the finalizing, the bringing together. I think so. All those goods that we I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. Josh on the screen, I think, wants to ask a question. Okay. Hi, you hear me? Yes. All the way from Israel. Um, I was uh, going to ask you about this interpretation of the seed because I, I uh, when it, the word in Hebrew is zera, right, the seed, it can actually be interpreted as singular or plural. Is that not possible? Yeah. It, okay. can, it can be interpreted plural or singular, and I mentioned that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm okay, just clarifying. Thank you. Sometimes 
Uh, it's plural, though. In Genesis 22, I contended that it was both plural and singular, that there's a singular seed and a plural seed that's going to be blessed. And then I went to Psalm 72 and tried to show that at the very end, there was an allusion back to chapter 22, I think verse 17, is it, uh, that speaks of all the nations being blessed in him, even using the niphal perfect, as I remember, uh, as is used in Genesis 22, uh, 17 through 18, um, that reflexive uh, tense. So, um, uh, so there I think you have already in the Old Testament, one seed blessing a plural seed. And I think that's what Paul has in mind there in Galatians 3.16 in the last verse of Galatians 3. Jesus is the seed, 3.16, and if we're of Jesus, we're the seed. Yeah. Okay. Any Thank other? you. Thank you for the question. Any, uh, I mean, I, I, again, uh, that, that was a big interpretation I just gave of all the scriptures. <laughs> so feel free to ask questions. Feel free to question me because uh, this, this is a very important point, but it is a point that that not all evangelicals agree with. Yes. Um, so the first number one. Uh, yeah. Solidarity yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I was curious as to is that distinctly apostolic, or would you, Jews have also seen have had that? Uh, did they have that distinct as well? In fact, in fact, the tech, the, the the illustrations I gave were from the Old Testament. Okay, like Achan and David. Uh, doing things that represented their families or represented Israel for good or for ill. No, but that you've anticipated something I'm going to say, and I hate to anticipate too much, but I will since you've asked this, and that is, where do these presuppositions come from? If they're true. <laughs> and I think if you look at the scriptures I've been talking about, I think they're true. Um, that's why I've taken time to try to support them. Um, where do you think they come from? Besides, besides, besides scripture, of course they come from, yes, they come from Jesus. But not only that, if you study the old and the old, you find the same presuppositions. The New Testament and Jesus are continuing the hermeneutical presuppositions of the old covenant. The Old Testament. There's a book that's just been written that you ought to have in your library. And uh, it is called The Old and the Old, Zondervan Publishers. Came out about a year ago. The guy's name uh, is going to be difficult. It's got to be German. It's Schnitzer, S-C-H-N-I-T-T-J-E-R, Schnitzer. Now, maybe in German, it's Schnitzer, not jerk, but uh, maybe it's been Americanized by now in pronunciation. But S C H N I T T. Schnitz. I think S J E R, I think. Schnitzer. So uh, you can find that online. Um, the Old and the Old, published by Zondervan. I'm on a panel where we're going to discuss this book. And one of the questions that some of us have already asked is, uh, before we come to the panel and talk 
how do we pronounce his name? So we'll figure that one out. Exactly. Well, not so much. It's just that these are the presuppositions. Later Old Testament writers, when they used earlier parts of the Old Testament, they worked with these same presuppositions. Corporate solidarity clearly is, is there. That the, that the people of God are unified throughout the Old Testament uh, is there. That there is a kind of what we can call, uh, cert certainly that there's this idea of um, typological exegesis. I mean, it's very clear that later Old Testament events were pointed to by earlier events. So when Isaac uh, and Abraham go into Egypt, uh, I think I'm correct on that, um, and they come out again, it's a foreshadowing of Israel going to Egypt and coming out again. So you have these typological fulfillments already in the Old Testament. Um, so, uh, and so, so you've got presupposition number three, that history is unified and earlier parts point to latter parts. You have, how about eschatology? Is that found in the Old Testament? Yeah. You'll find that some of the passages I already mentioned last hour and, and others actually allude back to prophecies in the Old Testament that say in the latter days this will happen. I mean, just take um, uh, Acts 2.17, in the last days, uh, God's poured forth his spirit. Well, that comes from Joel uh, 2.28, which says, after this, I'll pour forth of my spirit. After this, and a number of prophetic texts of the Old Testament is, is an eschatological phrase. Um, Peter's interpreting it, there's no doubt. But um, and, and, and so, so you have again and again and again. Whenever you have in the latter days, in, in the Greek Old Testament, it's, it's uh, eschaton, ton, hey, marum, usually uh, in the latter days. Um, it's, always, it's always prophecy. There is not one time, a scary statement to make, but I'm going to make it. There's not one time in the Old Testament that I know of that an eschatological phrase is seen as inaugurated in the Old Testament, always in the, now when you get to the New Testament, all of a sudden you have the same phrases, there's a difference, inauguration. Now you still do have some phrases in the New Testament where latter days refers to the very end, it's because they believe in already and not yet. But most of those phrases, eschatologically, are inaugurated. But you do, so you do find a, a, a very clear aspect of eschatology, it's just prophetic eschatology in the New Testament, it's an already and not yet, and then how about this fifth presupposition uh, about the centrality of Christ? Do you find that in the Old Testament? Well, I think you can trace what I would call a messiotelic view uh, in the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis 3.15 and, and, and going onwards. Um, I think you can trace something like that, but, but it's, it's certainly more subtle uh, than it is in Luke 24. Um, Okay, now, so um, it's only in the light of this fifth presupposition that we're talking about here that we may legitimately speak of what some refer to as a census plenum. Though, as I said earlier, I don't like that phrase because some use it 
to uh, say, oh, you can find meanings where they're really not in the Old Testament. I just use it in its literal sense, uh, full sense or full meaning. And um, so uh, this helps us understand how uh, there's a fuller meaning in the Old Testament that's brought out in the New than you can see clearly in the Old Testament. It has its seeds in the Old Testament. Um, in fact, here I, I, I want to talk about the use of mystery. You get mystery a lot in the New Testament. We're also going to look at this a little bit later. The word mysterion is used a lot in the New Testament. So, so for example, Paul will say in um, uh, Ephesians 3 that the church is a mystery. Uh, he says in chapter 3, verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by his apostles and prophets in the spirit. And then he says that uh, it's been his role to bring to light what is the management of this mystery. And, and the specific mystery is that Gentiles, verse 6, are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. So uh, uh, the mystery here is that the church uh, is Israel, um, because that phrase, to be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. Well, what are the promises in Christ? What are the promises? Like in Second uh, Corinthians 1.20, as many as may be the promises of God, they're yes in Christ. Well, what are those promises? They're either about the Messiah or Israel. So we can say they're about the Messiah and the redemption of Israel. And so uh, to say that the church is fellow partakers of the promises, they're, they, they, they're part of the fulfillment of the redemption of Israel. They participate in that along with ethnic Jews who believe. Um, now, why, why do I bring this passage up? Because I don't think that was as clear in the Old Testament that Gentiles uh, would be um, on an equal footing with Jews as true Israel. I think it was there, by the way, just not as clear. Um, and, uh, and this is really important. Some think that when Paul or Jesus uses mystery, it means it's something brand new. Not in the new, you can't find it in the old, this is brand new. And so there's a lack of continuity in these, these new revelations of a mystery there. They have nothing to do with the Old Testament, no. The revelation of the mysteries, and I'm gonna talk about them, are always clarifying and expanding uh, something that already has its seed in the Old Testament. And by the way, in this passage, I want you to listen to this language, which shows it's a matter of degree and not a matter of nothing in the old, but this is all new now in the new. Listen, he says, in other generations, Ephesians 3, 5, this was not made known to the sons of men, as, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles. It's an as of comparative degree. It doesn't say, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men 
and now it has been revealed. No, it's as it has now been revealed. It's a matter of degree. And this is really a, a major point on continuity with the Testaments. Because if these revelations of the mysteries are all new, have nothing to do with the, the Old Testament, I've got some, we're having a lack of continuity with the Old Testament as a result. So um, this, is, this is part of illustrations of, of, of this presupposition that the, that the, um, the latter parts of biblical history function as the broader context to interpret, to clarify earlier parts. Okay, that, that's really big. And so just letting scripture interpret scripture is uh, a massive thing. And doing this, looking at the illusions is one of the ways to do this more uh, uh, increasingly than, than, than perhaps people have done in the past. Um, so um, it's quite possible that the Old Testament authors, and I mentioned this earlier, too, did not exhaustively understand everything they said. In the sense that I'm not exhaustively understanding everything I'm saying right now, if you ask me a question to clarify, right? It's the same thing. But New Testament authors will bring that out. It may be the Old Testament authors, you know, that was way, barely, you know, when you're driving, uh, Driving test, like your peripheral vision test, because you got to have that when you drive. But at the edges of your peripheral vision, things get a little fuzzy. You know? And uh, sometimes New Testament authors will draw out the edges of the peripheral vision that was really there. Uh, you know, you might tell it's a person there. I uh, can't tell what they're wearing, so, so forth. It's a New Testament writer will bring that out. Or the room is dark in the Old Testament, this room full of furniture. You get to the New Testament, the light is turned on. In the Old Testament, you can tell it's furniture. You can't tell the color, color of, of the wood floor or of the carpet. It may be it's hard to tell the, the style of the furniture. You turn the lights on in the New Testament, the mysteries revealed that it is clarified. Ah, Victorian furniture. And the carpet's red. And so on and so on. It's an illustration of Old Testament, the new B.B. Warfield. It's not an illustration unique to me. B.B. Warfield gave that illustration. I think it's a, a good one. So subsequent New Testament scripture interprets Old Testament scripture by expanding its meaning, seeing new implications in it, and giving new applications. Just to give another illustration of this idea of uh, peripheral vision that an Old Testament writer may not have been focusing on, but a New Testament writer may expand. Um, let us say that one of you are uh, on my uh, back lawn on the patio. It's hot, hot in Texas in the summer. We're having lemonade on a summer day. And I've got Bach playing in the background. We're talking technology. And, um, and then you go to a friend in the, in the class. So, well, the other day I was at Beale's place. We were on the patio and uh, we're drinking lemonade, talking theology, and listening to Bach. And uh, your friend who you're telling this to says, well, does Beale uh, like other composers than Bach? Um, he liked Telemann, Pachelbel, and so on. Um, does, does he like generally broke music? And uh, uh, so the answer to that would be, yes, that's the right way to expand uh, 
you know, this, this reference to Bach really does become a part for a larger whole. But I wasn't focusing on Bachman, nor was I focusing uh, on um, other Baroque composers. I was focusing on listening to Bach and talking about Bach. And so it would be legitimate to say, I like not only Bach, but I like other uh, uh, Baroque music. Now, if we begin to go further, you know, into hard rock and that sort of thing, Carl Truman loves hard rock. And um, no, I completely disagree with his text on that. But we're good friends. Um, so that's another example. We might call this fit description. Van Hooser calls it fit description. So that an author will make a statement that there are layers in it. And some of those layers the author is not focusing on, but the New Testament writers will, will, will uh, uh, excavate those layers in the New Testament. Um, and I think, uh, I think it can be demonstrated that the way they expand the Old Testament does not contravene the integrity of the earlier texts that are being expanded. But develops them in a way which is consistent with the author's um, organic understanding. So the canon interprets the canon. Later parts of the canon draw out and explain clearly, more clearly, the earlier parts. Uh, one person has explained uh, this fifth presupposition of what I would call canonical contextual interpretation. I would really say, you know, uh, when the New Testament writers cite and interpret the Old Testament, that they're, they're exegeting. And I believe we're doing the same when we're trying to see legitimately if there is a type in this Old Testament passage we're preaching on, even though Jesus and the apostles don't mention this event that we're studying. Um, so this uh, one author says, in one sense, the fuller meaning of the text lies uh, not completely understood in the Old Testament, but it is part of the history of redemption. He says, an illustration may make this clear. An ordinary seed contains in itself everything that will develop in the plant or tree to which it is organically related. Every branch, every leaf, every flower. Yet, he says, no amount of examination by available scientific methods or grammatical historical methods, available scientific methods, will disclose to us what's in the seed. However, once the seed is developed to its fullness, we can see how the seed has been fulfilled. And it's the same with scripture. Gerhardus Voss gives the same illustration. And that's how he explains the organic connection of all of scripture. Earlier revelation is like a seed that is unpacked by later Old Testament authors and even more unpacked by New Testament writers. But you can understand, I think, why uh, New Testament scholars sometimes think that the New Testament writers are misinterpreting the old because they say, Look what this author, look what, look what Paul did with that uh, passage. And now it's a tree. Didn't look like a tree back then. I've done grammatical historical exegesis on that passage in the Old Testament. I have scientifically analyzed it. That wasn't a tree, but look, it's a tree now. Well, um, 
they didn't analyze it enough because actually in that, in that seed was that from which the tree developed. But you can see why they would be that way. You know, I discovered something too. Maybe this isn't fair. This is my experience. I found some scholars that I've known who believe the New Testament doesn't develop the old in the right way, but they never took Hebrew. They never studied much Old Testament. And so um, I, I think if you're a Hebrew exegete that you know, delve into that Old Testament passage. Now, what, what, one person has reacted to what I'm saying this way. You know, Beale thinks that wherever there's a problem of the New Testament or the Old, if you just go to the Old Testament and you really dig, you really dig, you really dig, you'll find a connection. And uh, he was saying that sarcastically. My answer is yes. <laughs> and I'm not being sarcastic. Yes, that's true. So he felt that was an objection to my view. Uh, I do think that's true. Now, I will say we may not, we may not always find uh, the connection, you know, we may, but we'll leave it as a problem. It's a presupposition to, to go from it's a difficult text to it's an error. That's a presuppositional deduction. Um, so, uh, the biblical basis then for each of these presuppositions um, needs more analysis, but the uh, we're going to have to leave it as it is for now. Um, I, I do want to remind you that these are presuppositions that are not new to the New Testament. Um, yes, they're from Jesus, but uh, they're already found in the Old Testament. So, so the Old Testament was perceived as pointing to the eschatological age in two ways. Via direct prophecy and by an indirect event prophecy or typological prophecy. Those would be the two ways. Um, Old Testament history, especially thinking about events, was understood as containing historical patterns which foreshadowed the period of the eschaton so that the nation's kings, prophets, institutions, and certain events were seen as pointing forward. And this is what scholars sometimes call typology. We're going to have a whole lecture on typology. Um, but briefly, typology is defined as this has five elements. And we're going to go over it again. But it's the study of correspondences within the sacred historical record of scripture that from a retrospective vantage point in the New Testament uh, can be seen more clearly as pointing forward. And usually the antitype, that is, that in the New Testament to which the old is pointed forward, the antitype is escalated. So we go in uh, John 19, uh, the lamb uh, on the on the cross, uh, um, where Jesus is, uh, you know, um, no bone of, of, of him shall be broken. You remember uh, John 19 there, exact wording. Uh, 
scripture uh, for these things came to pass with Jesus on the cross that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him will be broken. Well, that's the Exodus 12, the ordinance of the Passover. And so we're going from a lamb, I'd say it's escalated, to a bigger lamb, Jesus Christ. That's characteristic of uh, typology. You're going from something that's lesser to something greater in the New Testament revelation. So correspondence, the first element of typology, it's got to be within sacred scriptural record. Number two, uh, you look at it retrospectively and you can understand more clearly that fourthly, it points forward and fifth, it's escalated. So those are the five elements, but we'll, we'll talk about those uh, talk about those more. Um, so, um, so I would argue that this broad redemptive historical perspective that I've been talking about here in presupposition number five was the dominant framework, as Jesus is saying in Luke 24, within, within which they worked interpretatively. Uh, it was an ever-present heuristic guide to them interpreting the Old Testament. It's a, it's a Christocentric slash Christotelic lens. Um, so, uh, yes, we can do grammatical historical exegesis on the passage, um, but we don't stop there. We want to put our passage in the redemptive historical framework of Paul's writings, if it's in Paul, then of the New Testament, then of the Old Testament. Um, now, I think when you look at these five presuppositions, it explains Dodd's findings that there was a contextual uh, interpretation of, of the Old Testament in the New. So New Testament writers, as they're looking back in the Old, they're not looking for nitpicky things to pull out and rip out uh, and, and weirdly interpret. They're looking for more overarching historical patterns like an Exodus, like a creation, uh, like a king doing something. And it was this overriding perspective uh, that, that directed them um, a perspective of an omnipotent and wise design of history. So it was this holistic perspective guiding them away from concentrating on perhaps what we might call uh, irrelevant details or reading in meaning the text that uh, uh, did not have such a meaning. So now, these presuppositions also, and this is really now the payoff on these presuppositions, these presuppositions wipe away the parade examples of non-contextual exegesis by New Testament writers. In other words, when you really understand these presuppositions, uh, it helps us really understand the problem text that many people present in the New Testament as problem text, as text that New Testament writers are mishandling. But let me give some examples. Let's take the historical narratives that are viewed by the New Testament as prophetic. It's not just Hosea. We just saw, didn't we, that the Passover lamb from Exodus 12 was fulfilled in Jesus. That was an ordinance that was an event that was repeated in the Old Testament. And so um, if presupposition number three is right, that history is unified by a wise design, so the earlier four parts point to the latter part. If that's true, 
it really helps us uh, understand um, why the, that these types are legitimate. They're not illegitimate. That's a correct presupposition. Then that wipes away a lot of the passages that, passages that Longnecker just thinks are Herman Rashi, the wrong interpretations. How can you say that Jesus fulfills Hosea 11.1 when that's a historical statement? So it wipes away the objections to typology, number two. That is, wipes away objections to New Testament writers seeing events that are just narrated, that are not prophecies, seeing those events fulfilled in the New Testament. It wipes away those objections. Number two, you have prophecies where it says that Israel is going to be restored or redeemed. And they're applied to the New Testament. Give me just one example here. Romans uh, chapter 11. Where, uh, actually it's Romans. Um, Romans 9. Romans 9. And beginning at verse 23, it's talking about how God um, prepared vessels of honor. Verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, Romans 9, 24 now, even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but from among Gentiles, as he says in Hosea. I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. Well, that was a prophecy of Israel's restoration, not the Gentiles. He goes on, and it will be in the place where it was said to them, Israel, you're not my people. There they'll be called the sons of the living God. This is applied to Gentiles. Now, some say, and we're going to talk about different ways the New Testament uses it. Some say, well, that's just an analogical use of the Old Testament because it does say in verse 25, as he says in Hosea. So that's just a comparison. It doesn't mean, okay, yeah, the church is, uh, Gentiles are like Israel, but they are not Israel in fulfilling this prophecy. Um, problem with that is when you see prophecies in the Old Testament and they're quoted in the New, it's always fulfillment. It's not just analogical comparison. That's number one. And number two, this is in the midst of other, of other prophecies, not just analogies. He says uh, in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. And so the idea that only a remnant are being saved in Paul's time is a fulfillment of that text from Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 22, just as chapter uh, uh, nine, a few verses later in Romans nine, as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. So again, the remnant of Jews is a prophecy by Isaiah. So we have an introduction, Isaiah cries out, an introduction just as, Isaiah foretold, and earlier with the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, it's likely that is more than just a comparison. 
It is, yeah. The Gentiles are like Israel. They're like Israel because they're fulfilling the prophecies of Hosea. And you'll notice at the end of that prophecy from Hosea that is applied to the Gentiles in Romans 9, 26, there they'll be called sons of the living God. Already in Romans 8, he talks about Jews and Gentiles becoming sons of God. And those have got to be related within the context of two chapters. It's unlikely they're unrelated. Okay. So I, I'm thinking here of Romans 8, 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And here we have from Hosea, sons of the living God. So it's even in the plural there, and adding living. So, uh, so the presupposition that all history is unified by wise and sovereign plans of so the early parts point to the latter parts, that really wipes away objections to typology. And now the prophecies about Israel apply to the church. Some would say, what could be more non-contextual than that? Gentiles are not Israel. Well, they are. Remember our presupposition number two, because Jesus is Israel, we're, we're Israel because we're corporately represented by him. This is what I would call a legal hermeneutic, a legal corporate hermeneutic by which uh, he is our representative. If he's true Israel, we're identified with him. We are true Israel. By the way, I, I don't know if I'm going to do it while I'm here, but even son of God, when Jesus is called son of God, that's a, that's a phrase for Israel. Uh, it, it comes out of uh, Exodus 4. Uh, uh, you are my son, speaking of Israel, who, who God's going to redeem out of Egypt. Of course, again, Hosea 11, 1, out of Egypt have I called my son, and there are other places, but Adam's a son as well. Um, it doesn't say that explicitly in, um, uh, in Genesis, but a little, little pop quiz here. How can we legitimately and exegetically say that the Old Testament called Adam a son. And we'll just stay, we'll stay within Genesis 1 to 5. Yeah. Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of um, of Adam in the days of to his man, his likeness of God again. Mm. Okay. So what how is this saying that Adam was a son of God? By the way, I think you're right on target here. You got to analyze it a little more. You're right on target. So earlier on, Adam was made in the image of God. Thank you. Genesis 5 3, Adam was lived 130 years to come and a son in his own likeness. There you go. Image. To be in the image of somebody, to be their son. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And this is why at the end of Luke's genealogy that Jesus is related to Adam, son of God. Mm. I think that's the Old Testament background for that statement at the end of Luke. And so, um, uh, you know what that means? That, it, that son of God is not just an Israelite term, but Israel continues. It carries on the mantle of Adam. Remember Genesis 1.28? It's, it's passed on to Noah, he fails to pass on to Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Israel. They fail, but the time will come when Genesis 128 
it's quoted prophetically when it will be fulfilled. And um, so, uh, so son of God is an Israelite term, but it's also, uh, who, who was Israel? They, they were a corporate Adam. But not only, uh, there, there's another set of prophecies that these presuppositions answer, and that is they're prophecies about the Messiah that uh, are applied to the church. And um, someone say, what could, what could be more wrong about that? I've already mentioned a few of those, like Acts 13, 47. Um, how, how can we understand that to be legitimate? How can you apply a prophecy about the Messiah to an apostle or the church? Anybody? We can talk about it a little bit, just a little. Anybody? Uh, it's a dangerous thing to ask. Do you remember what I said? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So they're, they're corporately identified with one another. That's right. Um, and uh, likewise, you have prophecies about Israel that are applied to Jesus, the Messiah. What could be more wrong than apply a prophecy about a nation to an individual? Again, we have the concept of the one and the many. It's even the title of one of the books I told you. Uh, this idea of corporate representation, what's true of the one is true of the many. And sometimes you find what's true of the many is true of the one. Um, so it wipes away a lot of passages, a whole class of passages that are considered to be really not understandable um, and, and, and wrong. Now, some scholars say these uh, above uses of the Old Testament, as I said, are non-contextual. But given the assumptions, I think that they are seen as the right way of developing the Old Testament. But one could respond by saying their presuppositions were wrong. Uh, how would you respond to that? Maybe the presuppositions were wrong. It, it depends. If we're, talking, if we're talking to a if we're talking to a believer, even you know, the person that might right. perhaps suggest, for instance, Peter saying, "No scripture is by man's own interpretation, but man by God as they're carrying along by the Holy Spirit." Right? How could men write false presuppositions? Right. Yeah, part of that is now. Now we're not saying that the scriptures are wrong here, mm. but the presuppositions underlying it are wrong. So we're not. This would be a little bit different than saying, well, their, new, their use of the Old Testament was wrong. No, we're saying, someone say, well, be a, yeah, you've solved all the problems now, but I don't accept that these were the presuppositions. So I don't accept your solution to those problems. Oh, you see what I'm saying? I love what you said, though. Um, so um, anybody else want to try it? You were saying about the, those, those presuppositions are already being used in the Old Testament. Thank you. If you're going to say the presupposition the New Testament writers are wrong, then you've got to say it's all wrong in the Old Testament too. Now, if that just compounds the problem, yes, that's true, but it should make the other person feel the weight of what they're saying. And um, in fact, two well-known scholars, two well-known English scholars, if I said their names, you would know them. They teach at prominent universities. Um, we were working at the Tyndale House uh, in one case with one scholar, and um, 
So we were talking about all these issues, okay, old and new problems. He said, Bill, you know, you find a problem of New Testament use of the old and you just create another presupposition and solve it. It's endless, Bill. Your view is non-falsifiable. You just create a presupposition. If, 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 if it looks like there's uh, a problem and the, and the presuppositions you have haven't solved it, you, you come up with another one. Your view cannot be falsified. Well, I think that it can um, because the presuppositions aren't endless. They're not infinite. You can only discern basically what we have in the New Testament and they're controlled also because they're in the Old Testament. These are not just New Testament presuppositions. So there's a control on how many presuppositions there are. Now, there may well be more than what I've stated here, but if so, they are true biblical presuppositions. But I thought that was an interesting response to my view. Yes? So what is their counter-argument to your presuppositions? So if they say that you, you hold me in the make it it could possibly be infinite. How do they then hold together to still be a Christian at the end of the day uh, if they start to find fallacies in your presuppositions? Do you know what I'm saying? How, 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 they how can they maintain their Christian faith? Is that right? right. How do they manage their system of interpretation without a presupposition? Um, well, they do have their own presuppositions because everybody does have presuppositions. You can't get away from it. There's no neutrality, so you can't get away from it. Um, you know, uh, you're, 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 it's, it's always a case-by-case -case, uh, response, so I, I'm not sure how, how they would further respond, but I think it just ends up being that they maintain this inconsistency within them. They don't throw their faith away, their number, no, no, I'm a Christian, but uh, you know, one way they do it is what I said at the very beginning. They preach the right doctrine, wrong text, but inspired by God. Doctrine's inspired by God, not the exegetical method. So that's one way that many evangelicals would maintain their faith, okay? I think that's inconsistent because they would apply that to Jesus as well. I think they get a little nervous when they do that, but, never, but you have to. You've got to apply that to Jesus too. And then all of a sudden you got Christological dissonance. That it's not just hermeneutical, it's not just inspiration of Bible dissonance, it's it's Christological. That, I think that, that should get too close for spiritual comfort. I wonder, would you be able to say also? Um, so if the presupposition of Christianity is consistent and Jesus uh, based also on your Definitely. Yeah. Because, you know, you take Deuteronomy and even some of the earlier, they're, they're developing Genesis. They're, they're, it's old in the old already. In fact, you got old in the old in Genesis. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, I think probably you, my suspicion is you already get them by the end of Genesis. That's my suspicion. Yes, sir? So, just on maybe making this position sound more concrete, even than it does, is it possible to perhaps say rather than presuppositions, these are almost how scripture looks at itself? I'm trying to think of a better word for it, but 
particularly as we look back through the Old Testament, see this approach being used mm -hmm. over and over. Well, these are, uh, uh, you know, we went through the foundation of these presuppositions and they're scriptural. Mm -hmm. So I think you can say, yeah, that's how scripture, that's how, you know, if the apostles are, if, you know, um, Paul is saying that Hosea's prophecy about the restoration of Israel is fulfilled in Gentiles, well, there's a reason for that. And it's because Jesus is true Israel. So, so could we say that they are, there are assumptions or presuppositions that we have to use in our exegesis, but it's not that, it's not that they were sort of initially presumptions or presuppositions, it's that they were conclusions of some earlier revelation. I'm not sure what you mean. If, if by that you mean that looking earlier in the Old Testament, can you find those presuppositions and can you conclude that they're there? Yes, but I don't think you meant that. I suggesting could they be, could we say that these are actually things revealed, these are truths revealed at some point in scripture and that they're, they're made use of by later interpretation? You mean revealed explicitly as as hermeneutical principles is that is that what you're saying not like in these wordings right in some way well yeah that's what i'm arguing yeah that's basically what i'm arguing yeah um yes sir i, I feel it's said that uh, you know the way to come to these uh, uh presuppositions is just to read the bible a few hundred times <laughs> and um and, and i'm reminded of the lord who said you do err, not knowing the scripture mm -hmm. But he also said, and the power of God. Mm. So I think those two things, mm. and in the post-enlightenment thing that we're talking about, where the Holy Spirit has been greatly grieved in 22 years and so on. Yeah. So ignorance of the Bible is, is a big factor. I'm thinking more of the people in the pew than perhaps the... Well, we saw that. That very thing is illustrated in the Maus Road Travelers. They didn't recognize Jesus, and, and they were all depressed. Because, well, it's Jesus of Nazareth who died, and, you know, we're depressed and moping along the road to Emmaus, and then he opens their eyes. So the eye, their eyes have to be open. And by the way, it's not just an intellectual epistemological problem. It's also moral. Because if you remember how he introduces that in... Oh, foolish. Yes. Um, he says, oh, foolish men and slow of heart. So, you know, it's a moral issue as well. And this is, this brings me to something else that I, I probably shouldn't talk about it, but since you brought it up a bit, I think interpreting the Bible is not, for our preaching and teaching, this is not just an intellectual enterprise. This is a moral slash enterprise. We're accountable. As James says in chapter three, teachers are more accountable. It's a moral accountability that we have to teach and preach. That's why I love it that you're here studying. Greek and Hebrew, you're trying to, you know, really be scholar pastors in the Reformation tradition. I think that's, we're called to do that. We, we have to be diligent. Uh, as, as Paul says, uh, very well to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, chapter 2, be diligent, verse 15, to present yourself approved to God as a workman 
who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth in the context of that verse in 2 Timothy 2.15 is false teaching. There's a moral problem because these false teachers also have lifestyle problems. They're doing things like not eating certain foods or not marrying. That's part of the false teaching. But that, 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 that also causes a moral problem. And so this being diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. You know, if we really thought about that, you know, I, I, I think it, it would, uh, you know, cause us to, to really have fear and trembling. But thank the Lord, um, you know, he's given us his spirit and uh, we're going to fail because we're not perfect intellectually or morally. We're, we're not always going to be perfect interpreters. Before I preach and teach, sometimes I'll say, Lord, weed out any false stuff I have here, please. Because I'm sure I do. And um, so it's moral. You know, when you're, you know, so pray when you're preparing. Lord, cause me to understand your word in the way you understand it, at least sufficiently. Okay, I, I don't even know where we are in terms of time. Can we, let's see. Let's see if the eschaton has come. Okay, it's 3.30. Let's see. We were two lectures supposed to go to. Wow, this lecture. Were we supposed to have a break? We're supposed to have a break. Okay, let's take a five-minute break. Okay.